The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long E Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long E supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long E has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long E products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. Let's put a Bitcoin mine on a barge and put it in the northern hemisphere half of the year and the southern hemisphere half of the year. You know, and that seems silly when you say it that way, um, but I but I think it really does get at the the core opportunity here, which is the fact that these networks are, are available 24-7, 365 globally as buyers. And so as long as you can get the equipment and an interconnect, internet connection and sort of the control software that can, you know, do the calculations on ROI and so on, you can do that anywhere, anytime, and potentially even move it around. Digging into the contentious intersection of crypto and climate. This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So I've been wanting to do this one for a while. I've been watching over the past couple of years as the great debate over the relationship between crypto mining, particularly Bitcoin mining, and climate has flared up over and over again. It hit a real fever pitch a couple of months ago with heightened attention thanks to none other than Elon Musk waffling on the topic, first falling in love with Bitcoin and then shutting it down ostensibly because of energy consumption concerns. It's This debate has ensnared other public figures like Jack Dorsey, who's a big Bitcoin proponent who's spoken about the topic and whose company Square actually issued a white paper on the relationship between Bitcoin and energy during that same wave a couple of months ago and on and on. But I think this conversation is broken, or at least it has been so far. To me, it feels like there have been two groups who are largely shouting past each other into the void. First, there are the crypto enthusiasts who say things like, and I'm going to quote the title of the Square memo here, quote, Bitcoin is key to an abundant clean energy future, unquote. It's a bit much, and the logic there does need some testing. And then on the other side, there are the energy wonks who point out that if, and this is true, if Bitcoin mining were a country, it would already be in the top 30 for total energy consumption, rivaling Ukraine currently. And these folks tend to dismiss that first group's thinking, both on how to reduce the total energy consumption from crypto mining and Bitcoin mining, and more importantly, how you might actually be able to make mining an asset to a decarbonizing grid rather than a strain on it. So let's see if we can cut through the noise a bit. I had a great conversation this week with Nick Grossman, who is a partner at Union Square Ventures. Those of you in the tech or the VC world will definitely know USV. But for those who don't, it's one of the most celebrated venture capital firms in America with a truly ridiculous track record. And they, and Nick in particular, 
have gone deep on crypto with many claims to fame there, including being the largest early investor in Coinbase, which currently has a $49 billion market cap in the public markets. More recently, USV has gone big on climate tech as well and has raised a specific climate fund. So Nick straddles both the crypto and climate worlds, so I figured he's the perfect person to help me make sense out of this madness. With no further ado, my conversation with Nick Grossman. Nick, welcome. Hey, Shell. Good to be here. All right. Very excited to have you here um, and excited to talk to you about the relationship between crypto mining and Bitcoin and energy. But first, I would love a sort of quick version of your history with crypto personally. Like, how did you discover it when and, you know, what has your evolution around the thinking of its importance been? Yeah, sure. I guess to go way, way back, I've been uh, working in venture capital for the last 10 or so years. Before that, I was an entrepreneur uh, working at the intersection of cities and data on helping cities understand open source and open data standards. Uh, and before that, I worked in in the urban planning uh, realm. So I've always been interested in kind of infrastructure and how it gets built and how it gets managed and what is its nature. Um, and that started for me as urban infrastructure, uh, you know, how cities get formed and how they change. And then as I, you know, worked more in tech, I got fascinated by tech infrastructure and in particular, the kind of politics and dynamics of tech platforms. Um, what is the internet? What is the iPhone? What is the nature of, you know, Microsoft or, you know, the telecom industry? Uh, and there's a lot embedded there about who has control, how it gets built, how it gets financed, how it gets changed. Um, so that's kind of my long-term thinking. Um, and as I, I got into the open source world in, you know, 2008, 9, 10, 11, uh, I, it was fascinating to see technology get built in an open, transparent, democratic, uh, non-proprietary public process. And I'm talking about old school open source, uh, you know, Apache uh, web server or Mozilla or whatever, uh, not even crypto. And I it, it became fascinated um, by open source software development and open standards and interoperability. What do open systems look like? Uh, how can they grow and scale and um, how are they potentially desirable uh, when you're building out public infrastructure like telecom or payments or other things? Um, and so I've been with Union Square Ventures since about uh, the end of 2011. Um, we have historically been investors in traditional tech uh, platforms, social networks, marketplaces, developer tooling, and database technology, and so on. Um, we saw Bitcoin emerging in 2011, 2012, and started watching it um, because it was interesting for us to see a technology design that accomplished some of the things that you could only previously accomplish with a closed model, uh, storing data, um, calculating transactions, transmitting value, um, but being developed in an open source model where it's not owned and operated or controlled by any one party, um, and it acts like a protocol, like a web protocol, like HTTP or SMTP. And so it sort of immediately caught our attention based on its fundamental design. And um, we, at the time, uh, were looking for ways to invest around it. Uh, we invested in 2013 in a company called Coinbase, which is 
uh, one of the larger uh, cryptocurrency exchanges uh, in the United States and in the world. And that led us on what's now been a, you know, eight or nine year or eight year look into uh, the potential for building uh, financial and technology systems using an open source, open data, open standards model, which is crypto broadly. Um, and since that time, and, and really since the beginning, uh, we've been interested in the the sort of vast design space uh, that this all opens up uh, uh, in terms of um, uh, programming languages, programming environments, uh, different sort of functions and systems that can be built all the way from things that look a lot like money and finance, like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, to things that look like uh, tech and telecom like Filecoin or Helium or a thousand other um, technology and financial systems that can get built using this uh, crypto network, cryptocurrency architecture. Um, so it's been a long, it's been a long ride for us as a firm, and and I think for me as a as an individual, a sort of a natural extension of the ideas I've been pursuing for my whole career. Right. So you're the right person to have this conversation with because you have you know an eight year, ten year in the crypto and Bitcoin world, but also a, a somewhat shorter tenure, but you know, a, what appears to be a pretty steep learning curve you've gone up in climate and energy world since you've been a part of Union Square Ventures launching this new climate fund. So very, very few, particularly very few investors, I think, you know, span that chasm in the way that you have. Yeah, I think that number of investors is going to increase. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of folks uh, coming up the curve on on crypto in the last several years and, and the same things really happening fast in climate. Um, but it is true that we are um, both heavily invested in and, you know, engaged in the development of crypto network architecture and um, deploying a dedicated climate fund, uh, which is our newest fund that we launched at the end of last year. And so we're very much sitting at, you know, the sort of set of questions and tensions uh, that those two things when put together uh, represent. And I definitely, you know, I can't claim to be an expert in in any in any one field, whether it's crypto uh, or, um, you know, or mining, and certainly not an, an expert in energy uh, as a piece of the climate mix. Um, but we have been uh, coming up the learning curve fast uh, on on different approaches to addressing climate crisis, including um, you know renewables and the grid and the economics of the grid and so on. Right. So this is obviously a really big topic: the relationship between crypto and climate, or relationship between crypto and energy. There's a, there are a number of different directions that we could take the conversation. There are crypto applications in the energy sector and the broader climate sector, um, and there's there's a lot to unpack. In the interest of trying to be really precise here, I think what we want to address is what has been, as you alluded to, you know, a kind of ongoing debate and fairly controversial one, I would say, at that, around specifically the relationship between crypto mining. And even within crypto mining, you know, most of that conversation has revolved around Bitcoin mining, though we can come back to why Bitcoin isn't the only cryptocurrency and how they're different in this regard. But this debate around crypto or Bitcoin mining and energy, specifically how much energy it uses, um, how much emissions that creates, what it does to the grid, what it ultimately means for greenhouse gas emissions and climate. So that's our that's still a broad topic, admittedly, but it is let's let's narrow it down to that. 
And I think for our audience who I expect is probably on balance more expert in energy than they are in crypto, um, it'd be useful to start with, if you don't mind, a refresher on crypto mining, or let's maybe focus on Bitcoin to start. What is Bitcoin mining? What determines uh, how mining occurs and where it occurs? And we can then dig in a little bit on the economics, because I think as this debate has unfolded, um, oftentimes there's just two different languages being spoken between the crypto community and the energy community. And so let's see if we could just find a common language. Yeah. And uh, I agree this has been a a, a challenging conversation. Um, and I appreciate, uh, you know, you and I have engaged together on this, uh, you know, sort of representing maybe, you know, two communities, you know, trying to work through these ideas and, and either side. Uh, uh, and I'm, I say this as someone trying to walk up both learning curves simultaneously. Uh, they're both steep and complicated um, markets and systems. And then you kind of collide them together and it, it multiplies that effect. I think we should we should definitely talk about mining and the economics of mining and you know, the sort of the, the ways that mining touches power. And there are lots of them. Um, and I also think it's important, um, you know, to, to also talk about one of the, I think one of the bigger challenges that I've experienced in, in this conversation so far, which is as you get into power consumption, energy mix, um, so on of let's say Bitcoin or crypto generally, um, I think one of the bigger uh, challenges is, having a common understanding of the value of the thing in the first place, right? Because if uh, Bitcoin is, is complicated and hard to understand, uh, Ethereum and other networks do even more things and are even more complicated. Um, these are still frontier technologies being developed, um, you know, by geeks. And it's not really in the mainstream yet. And it's not a technology that everyone uses every day the way that they use, you know, Amazon or Google or, you know, sort of the internet or the financial system. And so I think a challenge in talking about this at all is, um, you know, finding some common ground on whether this technology has any value at all um, or, or what that value is. And so we obviously come from the perspective of having spent a lot of time with the technology and, and the applications of it and the potential of it and believe that it's important um, for a whole bunch of reasons. And, and we can talk about what those reasons might be, um, and that it has the potential to be an integral part of, you know, computing and data and finance and you sort of help the world work with all those things in important new ways over time. And so I just want to make sure that, and we can talk about, you know, any of those aspects of it, but I think that's, that's also important, um, groundwork for understanding energy consumption. Cause if, if you think it's, sort of pointless and and speculative play money, then any energy consumption is too much. Right, right. You're getting at something very basic, right? If it's if it's totally worthless, then of course we shouldn't use any energy to power it. If it's but we've all collectively, I think generally agreed that like, you know, data centers are pretty important. And we're willing to, I mean, there's debate over how much energy data centers should consume, but I don't think anybody would say they should consume zero. Um, so that is true. I mean, there's a fundamental thing here about like, you got to believe crypto is, has value, has value to society in order to, to want to power it with anything at all. Um, so, so that is a good point, but let's, let's dig in a little bit. So 
walk me through the basic economics of a of a Bitcoin mine. Yeah, and I um I can do this at a high level. Uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, a miner. I'm not an investor in mining companies, and so I will refrain from uh, you know the nitty gritty on you know the terawatt hours and the um, you know the prices of of hardware and things like that. But we can talk sort of at a general high level about how how mining works. I think the easiest way to think about it is if you took a data center like Google's data center or Facebook's data center, Amazon's data center. Um, and instead of operating it um, by a company powered by revenues from whatever product or service that company is offering, um, you make a system where anybody can operate one anywhere in the world and be part of that platform, um, be part of that computing engine. Um, and so uh, the Bitcoin network and the Ethereum network are the two that use so-called proof-of-work mining, uh, which is uh, the kind that consumes the most energy. And the idea is that, uh, you know, whether you're someone sitting in your basement at home or whether you're, you know, connected to a giant hydro plant in China or, you know, solar or whatever, um, you basically install uh, the Ethereum or the Bitcoin mining software. Um, you turn it on and you run it. And what that software does is, along with all the other people all over the world who are running that software, it confirms and checks and validates the transactions that are broadcast to the network. So being an open network where anyone uh, can broadcast a transaction and anyone can settle a transaction, the real hard part is figuring out which transactions are real and that nothing's been double spent and that the uh, ledger has integrity. Um, because the baseline of having any database or any financial ledger is that you can believe the transactions that are there uh, are real and the ones that are there today are the same ones that were there yesterday and the same ones that were there, you know, 10 years ago. And so the fundamental function that the miners serve is broadcasting transactions and verifying transactions. And um, without getting into the sort of complicated cryptography of, of how mining, you know, actually works, the shorthand is that in order to prove that you're not cheating and lying about the, the, ver the quality of the transactions, you have to do something called proof of work. Uh, which is prove that you have um, expended computing cycles uh, backed by energy in order to basically stake your claim that the transactions you are bundling into a block are real. Um, and so it, think of it as like a bond or some other sort of skin in the game uh, to prove that you're not lying to the network. Uh, and you use that by provably putting up you know, work that you've done. In this case, it is... Uh, using computing cycles uh, that you know require energy, so miners use energy to run the mining computer to verify the transactions you know that secure the network. And this is we get to sort of the first like point of contention around it then, which is basically inherently in a proof of work construct, you in order to do more work, which then yields you more opportunities to mint to mine new Bitcoin or whatever it might be. You need to do more computing. And as long as, I mean, computing becomes more efficient over time, but on balance, you're probably going to consume more power to do that more computing. Yes. Another way of putting it, for better or worse, is that Bitcoin and, and today's Ethereum are sort of energy-backed assets. Um, right. right. The minted Bitcoin are a direct result of uh, the 
injection of energy into the system. Right, which is also why you find that Bitcoin miners are, you know, they're on a hunt for the cheapest electricity. Electricity is their prime, you know, they have CapEx in the form of their equipment, and then they have OpEx in the form of electricity, basically. And so they're looking for the cheapest possible electricity that they can find. Um, Absolutely. And that has resulted, I think, in some cases, in Bitcoin mines being placed in on relatively clean grids because you end up having really cheap cost of electricity, for example, if you're in like Quebec with really cheap hydropower or in China, as you said, uh, with really cheap hydropower. Yep, Quebec, China, uh, you know, and then wind and solar obviously have very low cost curves, you know, compared to other forms of energy. And so, but I think the right way to think about it is that Bitcoin mining uh, is a seeker of low cost electricity um, and also low cost hardware. So this it's this combination of the cost of hardware and the cost of electricity that, that, that draw the market of miners. Right. And so Bitcoin is a seeker of low cost electricity, but not inherently a seeker of clean electricity. And so here we get to kind of the second point, which is though it is true that lots of Bitcoin mines are placed uh, in, in locations where the grid happens to be clean because you have something like abundant hydropower, it's not inherently that way. And not all of them are, placed in those locations. There are other places with cheap power that have cheap, dirty power, right? Like really cheap coal locations and things like that. Um, So then we get into this question, you know, I think there's one world in which you could say, look, if we had like endless abundant hydropower, or say we live in a future state where there's like endless nuclear, free nuclear power, um, then, you know, maybe this isn't like, this isn't really a debate. But the debate revolves, I think, more around uh, can and should these mines be placed paired with renewables, which is a trickier value proposition because in contrast to hydropower, which is baseload and operating all the time, renewables are obviously intermittent. So I guess next question in terms of the operations of a typical Bitcoin mine today, and then we could talk about how it could be. Um, it seems like the those economics you described, that process you described, lends itself towards mining all the time like operating at 100% load factor. Because if you have the equipment and you're depreciating the cost of a bunch of CapEx, um, all things equal, you you want to be computing constantly. Is that right? Yeah, I. so I'm not sure. I think that makes sense. Uh, and again, I don't operate a Bitcoin mine and I, I don't you know exactly know the answer to that question. Um, I think... Uh, you know, we're excited about opportunities and places where Bitcoin and crypto mining can be a secondary buyer and an intermittent buyer. Um, I think the sort of flip side of the flip side of your question, it, it does Bitcoin want to be mining all the time? The part that excites me is almost the reverse of that, which is it's always willing to be a buyer. Um, and so the places where there is energy that's being produced. I'm interested in cases where there's renewable energy being produced like solar and wind uh, that, you know, either can't be sold into the grid or is curtailed or, or so on and so forth. Um, the Bitcoin network will always be available to purchase that energy at, at a low price. Um, and so as a supplemental buyer, I'm very excited about the potential for it to improve the economics of renewables. Um, and, you know, BA, the, the fact that it, it is always willing to buy means, and, and, and that it is a buyer detached from a physical location, because with an internet connection, it does not matter where the Bitcoin are produced, the market for them is a global market. And so it, it has this potentially, I think, powerful effect of detaching the 
the generation of renewable from the market for it, which is one of the challenges in deploying renewables or planning for the deployment of renewables. Um, so I think I think that's the part of it that I'm I'm excited about at least. The interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. So I think you've you've now delved into what I think is the most interesting area to explore here. So this is where you get crypto enthusiasts who are really optimistic about its potential role in not just that it's not a problem from a, an energy consumption perspective, that it actually could be a solution to getting to higher penetrations of, of wind and solar. So just to maybe put it in like, maybe to repeat it back to you and put it in, in layperson terms, I think the idea here, and you can correct me where I'm wrong, is that you've got you know locations where you're you have times of day or times of year where you have oversaturation of, of renewables. You're in West Texas where there's too much wind some of the time and there's curtailment or there's grid congestion. You're in California with the duck curve and you're in springtime and we're curtailing a bunch of solar. At those times, um, you get to the point where you're either wasting some energy and that erodes the economics of the wind or solar asset, or potentially of negative pricing, which we do see in the middle of the country with wind and we're starting to see in California, right? So at that point, anything that soaks up demand, anything that is a flexible source of significant energy demand will improve the economics of any given wind or solar project. So stick a Bitcoin mine next to one of those big wind or solar projects and have it soak up demand because it's indifferent as to when it pulls power. Um, at those times when it is needed, and in doing so, you you sort of improve the economics of the wind or solar project, which allows you to build the next incremental wind or solar project, and so on. Exactly. Yes, that that's the idea that has gotten me excited, um, and uh, I think it starts with improving the economics of existing projects that have those problems that you just described, um, and then. If if it works, it can help finance the next project, and then, you know, ultimately potentially help finance the overbuilding of wind and solar in places where it would otherwise not be economical to do so. Um, so, you know, that's another another sort of one of the issues here is you know, um, the, in most places there are peak demand in existing you know markets, peak demand that exceeds what you can 
uh, supply with with wind or solar. And so another extension of that would be to overbuild uh, new new deployments and not just improve the economics of existing deployments. Um, you know, this is something that I, it's easy for me to say that, that that's a good idea uh, as someone who has a hand wavy understanding of both Bitcoin mining and, you know, renewable deployment. Um, and so I've been spending a lot of time recently meeting with in particular folks on the energy side uh, who've been in wind and solar renewables deployment, you know, for a, for a long, long time. only working to improve those economics that you just described, who are working on this. Um, So there are companies, you know, numbers of them uh, that are are looking to bring this, you know, solution to market as as a way um, that that the the economics of these crypto networks can help um, spur the the supply side growth of renewables. Right. So... But let's spend one minute talking about what what it would take for that to play out. So t- to me, you know, it, that treats um, Bitcoin mines or crypto mines as a source of flexible demand. Um, but it's only beneficial to those renewable assets or to the grid as a whole if they are actually flexible and importantly, intermittent demand. In other words, it has to be such that you know, you have to be able to profitably operate a Bitcoin mine at low capacity factor, right? Because you, you got to be able to take advantage of the cheap renewables when there's excess renewables, but not pull power equally 24-7, in which case it defeats the whole purpose. Yeah. And and I don't have a, the perfect answer for you on this, but I, I understand the question. And, you know, back to your original point about um, mining profitably being uh, the intersection of low-cost power and lo- low-cost equipment, um, you know, the, the trick is to identify the sweet spot uh, where those things intersect, uh, where it is profitable to mine intermittently. Um, and, you know, I think part of it is the low cost power. Um, you know, if you're curtailing or if you're, you know, seeing negative pricing, um, there's an opportunity to negotiate sort of extra low cost offtake, um, like substantially below market, um, because that's still an improvement over either of the you know current outcomes. Um, but I, I agree. I, I don't have the answer to that question, but that is one of the important pieces of math here to solve, uh, which is making the economics worth work for for intermittent mining. Right. That seems to me to be the sort of crux of the question: is this is this interplay between, you know, how cheap is the power that you can get, how how much do you need it, and those two things are sort of related to each other, right? Presumably, the cheaper the power, the more you are willing to operate it intermittently, the more expensive the power, the more you need to be running 24-7 in order to, because again, you're you're depreciating the cost of your CapEx and trying to earn that back as quickly as possible. Yep. Yeah. And there's also, you know, I'm just riffing here, but you can imagine um, a world where the the mining capacity, you know, moves around um, and is there and in the early stages of a deployment uh, when there's more um, unused, you know, uh, uh, electricity, um, and as the organic market, if you will, you know, for that uh, grows, then then maybe it can move somewhere else. You know, I, I I don't have a specific answer to that question, but I think there's solutions along those lines that people are working. You're on. describing the idea that I've I've thrown out somewhat jokingly, but I'm waiting for somebody to pitch it to me um, on this podcast a number of times, which is you know the other issue you have with high penetration renewables grids is like a seasonal issue. Where, you know, if you have a high solar penetration grid, you get in California, we get three times as much solar generation in the spring as we do in the winter. 
uh, why don't you just, and it's, it's a hemispheric thing, right? So like, let's put a Bitcoin mine on a barge and put it in the Northern hemisphere half of the year and the Southern hemisphere half of the year. You know, and that seems silly when you say it that way. And I appreciate that. Um, but I, but I think it really does get at the, the core opportunity here, which is the fact that these networks are, are available 24 seven, 365 globally as buyers. And so as long as you can get the equipment and an internet connection, internet connection and, sort of the control software that can, you know, do the calculations on ROI and so on. Um, you can do that anywhere, anytime, and potentially even move it around. Um, and I think that, you know, it's going to be a while to see if this really works in practice. Um, but I but I think these are the concepts that, um, you know, credible entrepreneurs in this space are, are working on. So one way, obviously, to decarbonize mining is what we've just described. And that that's even more than a way to decarbonize mining. It's like to use mining as a tool to decarbonize uh, power. But there are other ideas to decarbonize mining or to incentivize decarbonized mining. What, what do those look like? Yeah, I think um, we're starting to see a bunch of ideas <clears throat> floated and, and beating it to get developed to create incentives um, and other proofs for green mining. Um, you know, as you, especially as you have uh, large institutions that are buying Bitcoin uh, as an investment or as a financial asset, um, you know, there's going to be a demand, like with anything else, to uh, feel good about that investment and that holding. Um, and I think some version of sort of green green Bitcoin certificates or <clears throat> some other incentive. Uh, for for Bitcoin that are mined uh, off renewables uh, may come to pass. Uh, there's a few different projects that are working on this right now, um, you know, in different ways. Um, but I think, you know, just like you have, you know, uh, carbon credits today and offsets and and wind wrecks, um, I, I can expect uh, that type of a market to emerge alongside of uh, different forms of crypto mining, including Bitcoin. Um, and, and it's even, it may even be possible without a formal credit or or rec or offset system um, to have, you know, uh, mining pools uh, voluntarily report their energy mix um, and then large institutional buyers uh, choose to to buy direct from those pools who can, you know, prove what their mix is. And so I think some of the market forces that we're seeing today in the carbon markets uh, as it relates to carbon just broadly, I think we can expect to see here um, just applied and um, you know executed maybe in slightly different ways. Yeah, it's not so dissimilar from you know the original creation of RECs of renewable energy credits was we we are trying to decommodify electricity, right? It's like we have, we have commodity electrons, but we wanted a way to be able to say, but wait a minute, some of these are produced cleaner than others. We need a way to distinguish those, and we need a way to, we need that to be a liquid market in some form so that we can incentivize the ones that are cleaner. And and there's no inherent reason why you can't do the same thing with a cryptocurrency. No, and I, and and I, there are people working on this idea and you know I think you're probably more of an expert than I am in in the the market for recs and and how useful and how good those are and um I know they're not perfect but they're sort of I think it's directionally important to work on incentives uh and and proofs of of clean purchasing and and in some ways, you know, cryptocurrencies are are kind of like native recs the same way that bitcoin is sort of an energy backed asset um you know uh, green credits attached to mining 
are are the same way and and live on block the blockchain you know natively and can trade globally you know instantly and so I think there's um, I think that that's an idea with potential and it does feel like there are real market forces uh, that could drive that you know institutionally and from corporates. So the other you know I think big open item here is we've been talking exclusively about the sort of current uh, process for verification for Bitcoin and Ethereum, which as you described as proof of work, which is the thing that is inherently tied to energy consumption and why Bitcoin mining now as a whole consumes as much energy as a small country. But it is not the only method of verification within cryptocurrency. So can you, I guess, briefly uh, try to describe some of the alternatives and how those impact energy consumption? Yeah. Um, and I think the thing to remember at the outset is that the the point of all of this is to create a system that can be trusted where no one party is in control. And if you have such a system, um, it can be very, very useful because it can have a lot of integrity um, and it can do, a, you know, you, you, you don't have a monopoly, you know, operating it or, or whatever. So, uh, so that's the original challenge. Um, how does everybody agree on the state of things without without any one person um, being in control and the potential for malicious actors to try and cheat and game it and so on? So an adversarial environment. And Bitcoin and Ethereum's proof of work was the first um, system to really figure that out, where the you know the cost to cheating is how much you've spent on electricity, basically. Um, and there are a handful of other. Um, security systems uh, in the in the crypto world um, that have been developed since then. So uh, the most common one is something called proof of stake, uh, where instead of um, minting new coins using electricity and computing power and electricity, the coins are sort of minted in advance and people have them or earn them. And in order to be part of the set of nodes that validates and secures the network, you put up a stake like a bond. Um, and if you're caught lying or if you do a bad job, you know, you lose that basically. Um, and, and so that is one very emerging popular, uh, model. Uh, the next version of Ethereum works on a proof of stake model. The, uh, Algorand is a project that we're investors in that does a proof of stake model. Um, many projects are, are, are bringing this to market. Um, the energy consumption there is very low. You're still running computers and the computers are still verifying transactions, but they are not, you know, using tons and tons of compute to solve the hard mathematical problems that are at the foundation of, of proof of work. Um, you know, one of the criticisms of proof of stake systems is that, um, you know, you can end up with a system controlled by the large holders. Um, you know, and, and I think there are, you know, potentially challenges with that. People who really believe in proof of work and Bitcoin, uh, don't like that aspect of proof of work, uh, proof of stake systems. And, uh, there are a lot of, you know, twists on how to design a proof of stake system that's fair, uh, and that is evenly distributed, but that's one of the challenges there. Um, there's another, um, emerging consensus and security system called proof of space time. This is my uh, favorite name, uh, by the way. Proof of space time yeah. is super cool. I know. It's amazing. So the, the two highest profile projects that use that are one called Filecoin and another called Chia. And in those systems, the thing that the resource that you are, you know, proving that you're using, that you're staking, um, is hard disk. And so you're storing files on a hard disk, you're proving that you're that they're still there. 
Um, so instead of using the CPU of the computer, you know, to prove your work, you're using the disk of the computer to prove your work. And Filecoin is actually a file storage network where that's the, you know, output of that network. Chia is more of a general purpose cryptocurrency uh, like Bitcoin. Um, both Chia and Filecoin have driven massive demand in computers uh, in China uh, as folks who are, you know, invested in traditional mining are, are you know, also investing in proof of space on mining. Um, you know, both of those are early systems, uh, not terribly widespread yet. Um, and then the there's another approach, uh, proof of coverage or proof of location. So we're investors in a, a project called Helium, which is a wireless telecom network that's built on the same principles uh, uh, as Bitcoin and Ethereum and the others. And there you are uh, proving uh, that you exist in space uh, and you, you, know, you plant your nodes in the real world and the nodes verify each other spatially. Uh, using you know radio frequency and triangulation and so on and so you know there are I think many novel um, approaches to uh, basically proving trust and security in in crypto today the two that have proven the well the one that has proven to be the most secure for the longest period of time is proof of work uh, which is what underpins Bitcoin and Ethereum in its current version um, and I think you know we'll see how the others develop. We're actively investing in the other approaches also. Um, and, uh, but I think the, at the end of the day, the, these systems are about longevity and trust. And so the winning architecture will need to prove itself over a long period of time that it can be resistant to hacking, tampering, um, you know, attacks, um, bugs, you know, and so on and so forth. All right. So to close out, um, this is obviously this nexus, I think, of, of crypto and energy is, has become pretty interesting. And I, I find it is one of these few places where like, there's such, they're both diametrically opposing views that are not necessarily inconsistent with each other, interestingly enough. And also just, there's like a lot going on, as you alluded to, there's a fair amount of effort, um, between energy companies that have assets that they're interested in pairing with basically big data centers, which which crypto mines are. There are Bitcoin miners who are trying to be the most profitable Bitcoin mine by finding the cheapest power. There's and then there's sort of folks who are sitting in between thinking like, oh, I can I can solve for this problem in interesting ways. I guess the final question I have for you is what aren't you seeing? Like what would you like to see at this nexus that you that you think isn't happening enough? That's it's a great question. I mean I think we will see more at this nexus in the future, undoubtedly, um, because Bitcoin and crypto uh, feel foreign and like a novelty today. But um, it's a little bit like the Internet in, you know, 1995. Um, it's not part of everyday life, but it will become so. And so I think, you know, part of it is just these systems are going to become more regularly intertwined with our computing and financial lives without us really knowing it. Um, and the, the kind of economic moves, the things that are possible using this architecture will become more part of the design language of business, I guess, over time. And so I think just inherently the two will, will merge together. Um, you know, we're seeing we're, the other things we haven't talked about yet that we are seeing is, um, you know, one thing that I think is interesting is that the crypto net, uh, markets, especially on Ethereum, are global trading markets with novel financial products that are getting launched 
you know, all over the world. And one thing that I think is interesting is uh, carbon uh, credits and carbon assets, you know, getting becoming global tradable assets, you know, on Ethereum. We are seeing that today. I think that's um, going to grow and hopefully will be part of what um, improves the global market for carbon and improves the global pricing for carbon. Um, that's also early, but I think it's really important. And then, you know, I think at a at a high level, the thing that that excites me the most, the two things that excite me the most here are the ability to front load the deployment of infrastructure. That's what crypto networks let you do because you're creating these assets that never existed before and people think they're valuable. Um, you get, you know, this sort of supply side first effect uh, that I think can be applied to other forms of infrastructure. So, you know, it's applied to telecom in the, in the form of helium. I think we can apply it to, um, you know, wind and solar, like we've been talking about. I think there are probably other f- types of infrastructure uh, that are important to the climate that can be financed using these mechanisms that we haven't figured out yet. Um, and then the other part of it is that, you know, crypto networks are inherently open and programmable. Um, once they're up and running, anyone can launch an app, if you will. And ev- all the assets that are um, deployed into these networks are programmable and interoperable. And we're just beginning to see the potential to use that for sort of climate you know, purposes uh, of all kinds, whether that's energy directly or carbon or, or who knows what else. But I think the open programmability of this is... is has so much potential and so much of the climate crisis is itself a financing crisis. How are we going to finance the build out of all this, the new infrastructure that we need to turn the infrastructure over? Um, so I hope we can use the inherent in- infrastructure of crypto networks and also the assets that ride on top of them as part of the financing mix, um, you know, for the infrastructure that we need to build to, to solve the climate crisis over the next 20, 30 years. All right. Well, I, f- I feel like we've done a pretty good job of covering like one tiny slice of one corner of one dark room of the crypto and climate nexus. <laughs> so I suspect we will have to have you back on to cover another tiny slice of it. But thank you so much for doing this. It's my pleasure. Anytime. It's been a lot of fun. Nick Grossman is a general partner at Union Square Ventures. As always, we would love your feedback. Uh, you know, on this topic in particular, I suspect people have very strong opinions, so you're always welcome to voice them. Uh, you can tweet at us at, at interchange show. You can send us an email at contact at postscriptaudio.com. You can give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, as long as it's a good one. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf, Dalvin Abuaji, and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Thank you.